Hello, everyone, and welcome to the True Blue Crime Podcast. My name is Dan, and as always, I will be your host for this episode. This is part three of a three-part series covering the life and crimes of the monster known as Ted Bundy. If you haven't already, please listen to parts one and two, which are episodes 102 and 103 of True Blue Crime, as they cover the early life and the majority of the crimes committed by the man known as the Lady Killer. After this episode, I'll be taking my CrimeCon break from both of my podcasts, and after I return, I will be doing two new episodes of this podcast and two on my True Blue Crime Investigates podcast each week. And in addition, I'll be doing one premium podcast episode each week week for my Patreon supporters. But before we get to this last episode, let's cover the business side of things. If you'd like to get updates about what the podcast is up to, please like and follow the True Blue Crime Productions Facebook page. More information can be found at the show's website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. And if you'd like to email me directly, my email is truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com. If you can, please support the show via Patreon or PayPal. Links to make donations are on the website at truebluecrimeproductions.com. Any donation level helps, and it'll help ensure I can keep making free episodes of the podcast and expand the podcast in the future. Any donations will receive a shout-out in a future podcast, a thank-you message from the host, and some cool True Blue Crime merch. For no cost whatsoever, please rate and review the show on whatever platform you're listening to it on. Thanks so much, and without any further ado, let's dive into this episode of True Blue Crime. In parts 1 and 2, we discuss the early life of Ted Bundy, from his early years filled with family confusion to his move to Washington State, where his mother married a man who would adopt Ted, but also take the brunt of Ted's anger towards his life situation. Some experts believe Ted began killing at 14, as he is a prime suspect in the 1961 disappearance and murder of an 8-year-old girl in his hometown of Tacoma, Washington and Ted has told many people he started killing before his known murders that started in 1974. After the love of his life broke up with them, as he wandered aimlessly through his late teens and early 20s, he focused on his education and a politically charged career. This won him the love of his life back, just so that he could turn around and break her heart as revenge. At the same time his master plan for revenge was nearing completion, Ted started killing teenage and college-aged girls in the Seattle area. His crimes were well-planned, well-executed, and left little evidence behind. This indicated to investigators that he had killed before and had perfected the act of abduction and murder by 1974. After establishing the rapid pace of one abduction and murder a month, Ted committed a double abduction and murder from a busy beach on a summer day. This led to many eyewitness accounts of his name, description, and vehicle. A composite sketch of Ted from the lake drove him out of the Washington area and down to Salt Lake City. From the moment he arrived, women and teenage girls started going missing, and by 1975 he expanded his hunting grounds to Colorado. But in August of 1975, just as Seattle area detectives were closing in on Ted Bundy as a suspect in their as-yet-unsolved abductions and homicides from 1974, Ted was about to become the prime suspect in the Utah area murders after a routine traffic stop by an alert highway patrol officer. While on routine patrol in a suburb outside of Salt Lake City, Utah Highway Patrol Officer Bob Hayward observed a Volkswagen Beetle driven by a man who appeared to be cruising slowly in a residential neighborhood. The car took off after seeing the squad car, and Officer Haywood took chase and initiated a traffic stop on the vehicle. After approaching the car, he noticed the passenger seat had been removed and was resting on the rear seats. 
And so this is something definitely for my time as a patrol officer. I worked dog watch, which was 8 p.m. to 6 a.m. for several years of my career. And from those hours from about 2 a.m., so after bar close to about 5 a.m., which is where you start to see people waking up and starting to drive around, there's really only two types of vehicles that you see driving through neighborhoods late at night. The one that usually would get rookie police officers is the newspaper delivery person. If there's any of the people on listening to this that have ever delivered newspapers, you've probably been stopped by several, especially rookie police officers, because people will actually wake up in the middle of the night and call into the police department. So they'll get up at 3.30 or 4 in the morning because they have to go to the bathroom. And since they're not normally up at that time of the night, as they're going to the bathroom, they look out the window or they hear a car driving and they go check out the window and they see this car slowly driving up and down the street, making stops at people's driveways and and they call it in as a suspicious person and they don't realize it's a newspaper delivery person. That somehow those newspapers end up on your driveway, your front porch or wherever it might be every single morning and that's because it's sometime during the night it's not a newspaper ferry it's a newspaper delivery person that is driving their vehicle and delivering these newspapers so that's one type of person you'll see driving around three four in the morning in these neighborhoods but the other type of person is somebody who's prowling and they may be prowling for one of many different reasons they may be looking to break into cars that are in the driveways they may be looking to break into homes they may be looking to do some type of a peeping tom activity but usually people who get off work from say a some type of a mid shift or a get off of work in the middle of the night the last thing they want to do is drive slowly through a neighborhood they want to get home and get to bed so when you see somebody driving slowly through a neighborhood, a lot of times they'll have their headlights off or they'll just be driving five, 10 miles an hour down the road, it indicates they're up to some type of criminal behavior. So that's what this Utah Highway Patrol officer, this Bob Hayward sees is this Volkswagen Beetle driving through a neighborhood in those types of the hours of the day, he immediately realizes something's not quite right. So he chases down this beetle stops it's ted bundy driving and as he approaches the vehicle the first thing police officers are trained to do as you approach on a traffic stop is look in the back seat slash passenger seat of that vehicle because if you focus solely on the driver which you need to do once you get up to the vehicle and have interaction with the driver then you're watching their hands and what they're doing and all that kind of stuff but before you make contact with the driver before you're standing behind that b pillar engaging that driver in conversation a lot of police officers will walk up to the car a lot of them will go to the rear driver's side door if it's a sedan and shine their lights look in that back seat area then they might walk around and approach the vehicle from the passenger side so they're talking to the driver through the passenger window this is done for a couple different reasons one is officer safety in terms of this gets you out of the roadway so people aren't paying attention they're on their phone and they drift into where your traffic stop is you don't get hit by the car if anything's going to get hit it's the driver's side of this car you're safely on the passenger side also people assume a police officer going to walk up and talk to them at their window so if somebody is going to ambush a police officer there's been many police officers that have been saved 
by walking up to the passenger side and looking through that window and seeing someone literally clutching a handgun and at their side getting ready to lift the gun and shoot the police officer but they don't realize that police officer approached them on the passenger side because a driver has a great for the most part minus the blind spot view of their side view mirror so you'll actually sometimes see people staring in their side view mirror waiting for you to walk up whereas you have a more a better blind spot if you approach from the passenger side but long story short Officer Hayward walks up to Ted Bundy's Volkswagen Beetle. He looks in there, is looking for anything out of place. He immediately sees that the passenger seat of this Beetle has been removed and placed into the back seat area. That's not normal. Most people don't drive around with their passenger seats removed. Not only can you not have a passenger sitting in there, now you've obstructed the rear passenger area. So you've essentially made this a solo vehicle at that point. And this is gonna convince the officer that Ted was prowling the neighborhood and had set up his car for some sort of burglary. And that's probably the initial thought. It's not gonna think that he's abducting people. It's that he's making space for, you know, if you park your car on the street, you can walk up and easily load stuff into that passenger window, especially something like a Beetle. You don't have to open the trunk. You don't, it's a two door car. You don't have to reach and put stuff into the back. So it's made it look like it's, it's, made it easy for him to sneak into a house, steal some stuff, put it in the passenger's side and take off. So this is gonna give him probable cause to search the, the Volkswagen and he's gonna find two masks. One was a ski mask, the other was a crudely fashioned mask with holes cut out of the pantyhose, a crowbar, handcuffs, trash bags, an ice pick, some rope, and a flashlight. And this provided the officer with evidence Ted was likely planning to break into homes in the area and he arrested Ted. Because again, it's not gonna be likely in his mind that, that he's coming across a, a guy who commits a ton of abductions and murders. Everything that's in that vehicle from the tools to the flashlight, yes, the handcuffs are a little strange for a burglary suspect, but some people, you know, we had the original Night Stalker, the, before he became the Golden State Killer, would often bind people just in case when he got into a house. So again, while it, we now know this is an abduction and murder kit, Officer Hayward might have had some idea that that was what was going on, but he likely just assumed at the bare minimum he's got a good burglary suspect and he arrests Ted. A detective heard about the arrest and he remembered Ted's name from when Elizabeth had called down to report Ted as a suspect as a possible suspect in the disappearance of the teenage and young women in the area. So now you've got Elizabeth having called down there. Thankfully, they didn't just blow her off. They wrote his name on a list. So this name is going to sink into this detective's brain going, wait a second, we just stopped a guy who has a criminal kit in his vehicle and we were warned that this guy might be abducting and murdering women. So he's going to go interview Ted. Ted tried to explain away the items, claiming the ski mask was for skiing, and the other items were just stuff he found while dumpster diving, including the handcuffs. And while the police didn't believe him, they conducted a search of his apartment, which did offer up some evidence of his crimes. This included a guide to the Colorado ski resorts with a check mark by the hotel where Karen Campbell was abducted and a brochure for the high school play that Deborah Kent was participating in before she went missing. However, this evidence alone was not enough to directly tie him to the missing women and is released pending further investigation. So they've got 
a ton of circumstantial evidence because there's nothing in his vehicle is illegal. All of the stuff, the ski masks, even a mask made out of pantyhose, the tools, everything in that kit is legal to own. It's suspicious as hell that you would have all that stuff driving around with your passenger seat removed, but it's not criminal in nature. They can't charge him with anything for it. And it's the same thing, this brochure and this ski resort deal. They, it obviously points towards him being a very solid suspect in these crimes, but anybody could have these and wouldn't necessarily be linked to the murders. There's no direct link at this point. So unfortunately, they have to let him go. And Ted would actually later tell investigators that if detectives had looked a little harder that day, they would have found his collection of Polaroid photos of some of his victims. And he destroyed these photos after his release from custody. So unfortunately, this was actually a, a big miss on the part of the detectives because this would have provided them with the direct link between Ted and a lot of the, the missing and murdered women. It, it, we're going to find out it's not going to likely save any lives because everything that happens after this is the further crimes he commits are going to actually be after he escapes from custody so either way he would have been in custody it just would have been for some different crimes but it's just unfortunate because it made their the investigation that much more difficult when they missed these polaroid photos and then ted was able to destroy them and despite releasing Ted, Salt Lake City investigators believed they had located the man responsible for the string of missing and murdered women, and two of the detectives flew to Seattle to talk with Elizabeth while other investigators kept Ted under 24-hour surveillance. This is because they couldn't risk him abducting and killing another woman after they had released him. And so, they, I mean, they believe so strongly that this is our guy that they realize they have to release them. You can't charge somebody for a crime if you don't have probable cause that they committed the crime. Uh, reasonable suspicion is not enough to get an arrest warrant or to get charges against somebody. So again, while everything that he has is suspicious as hell, they don't have legal grounds to keep him in custody and they have to release him. So they're gonna keep him under surveillance and in some cases, they're going to let him know he's under surveillance. They, this is not a surreptitious thing where they're hoping to catch him in the act of, of abducting a woman. I mean, if that happens, then yes, they'll have charges, but they're more or less just trying to buy time to build a case against him. Elizabeth told the Salt Lake City investigators how she had continued to find items around her place and Ted's apartment that had no explainable use for Ted. These included crutches, slings, and other medical devices that he didn't need because he hadn't suffered an injury requiring the medical aids, as well as casting plaster, surgical gloves, and a large knife that he'd never used for cooking. Furthermore, Elizabeth explained that Ted had never been with her on any of the nights that the women had gone missing in the Seattle area, and that he kept a tire iron that had been converted into more of a weapon in the trunk of her Volkswagen Beetle, which he sometimes borrowed from her. From the detective, she learned of Ted's cheating relationship with Diane Edwards in 1973 leading up to the string of murders. She even learned that Ted had introduced Diane to others as his fiance during a time when he was dating Elizabeth. I'm assuming that this was done by the investigators to create a, a, an even more hostile situation between Elizabeth and Ted. 
it's one of those things where even though she's gone out of her way to to report her suspicions it's still somebody that she has feelings for it's somebody that she had spent time with so while she suspects ted of committing these crimes she may be holding back certain information either hoping that in the case that he's not the killer she can continue to date him but investigators are going to drop some of these relationship bombs on her to hopefully have her if she does have any information she's holding back this new information is going to make her a very vindictive witness that's going to release further information that she might know about ted and, and i didn't see anything in the research about that but just reading that the detectives were informing her of this stuff made me think that this is obviously a tactic they were using to get more information out of elizabeth and as detectives were trying to gain that valuable information about Ted from Elizabeth, Ted was busy trying to dispose of evidence in Utah. After destroying the Polaroids that were missed in the search of his apartment, he sold his VW Beetle that he had used in the majority of his attacks to a teenager. Because he was under constant surveillance, investigators swooped in after the sale and advised the teenager that they wanted to thoroughly search the car for evidence, and the new owner consented. And we've talked about this in previous episodes, Automobiles are exempt from search warrants at the time of the stop. So if a police officer sees something uh, in plain view or has probable cause to believe that a car contains evidence of a crime, the police officer does not need to get a search warrant to search that vehicle for that evidence. However, some courts challenge that from time to time, even though it's an accepted exception to the search warrant mainly because if you're going to plan on towing that vehicle or, or basically taking that vehicle into custody, you then have time to obtain a search warrant. So there's, there is some gray area when it comes to searching vehicles, but once you've released that car back to that person, once the traffic stop is over, it's not like you can go find that car again without a search warrant and be like, hey, our bad, we really want to search this car. We, we couldn't do a really good job of searching on the side of the road, but we don't have a search warrant. We just want to look at it a second time. But because he gave up ownership of this vehicle through this sale to a private party, he's then given up all rights to anything in that vehicle, any privacy concerns. And so once they get consent from this new owner to tear apart this car, they can do whatever they want within permission of the, the new owner to try to find evidence. And so FBI technicians dismantled the car piece by piece and located key items of evidence that had been missed by Ted. This included human hairs, later identified as consistent with hairs from Karen Campbell, Melissa Smith, and Carol DeRanche. This was important because DNA wasn't being used yet and hair comparison, while it was an accepted science, it didn't hold the same weight as fingerprints. One consistent hair could be explained away, but three consistent hairs from three different victims made the case against Ted much stronger. So hair is not a fingerprint. Hair is not identifiably unique between individuals. It can be used to exclude individuals. You can look at hair from two different individuals and say this is hair from two different individuals, but you can't 100% definitively say that this hair came from this person. You can only say that this hair is consistent with other hairs found from that person. So in the case of, of Karen Campbell's hair, if they had only found that one hair, defense attorneys can jump all over that and say, that hair could be from anybody. He went on a date with this 
law student at uh, law school in Utah, and she happens to have hair that's very similar to this missing person. You can't prove it's from the deceased person, so good luck in you know proving that to a jury beyond a reasonable doubt. But once you introduce hair that's consistent with two other victims, you're starting to say, what are the chances now? Are you saying that he went on three different dates with three different women that just happened to have the same exact hair as three different missing murder victims? So the more that the technicians find, the, the fact that they're able to find these three hairs, these hairs are consistent to three different victims, they're starting to build a much stronger case against Ted. And one of Ted's surviving victims, Carol Durange, was given a photo lineup and she immediately picked out Ted as the man who had claimed to be a police officer and then tried to abduct her. He was also identified by witnesses that saw him around the school where Deborah Kent was taken from. And while investigators had strong evidence linking Ted to the missing women, their bodies hadn't been found yet, so prosecutors weren't ready to charge him with murder, but they had a strong case for attempted kidnapping of Carol Durange. He was arrested and charged with aggravated kidnapping in October of 1975, and his parents paid for his $15,000 bail so he could remain free until his trial. And I did think that they had Carol Campbell's body. I thought she was the one that was found just outside the resort. So when I read this, I wasn't exactly sure what they meant by that. I, I guess maybe they had the one hair from that was consistent with Carol, and so they were able to say that that was consistent with Carol's hair but they didn't have hair from the other two women although the one was carol durange so she was a surviving victim so yeah again I'm, I'm a little confused why they weren't ready to prosecute at that point but what they're going to do is what is often the case they do have a solid case for this attempted kidnapping of carol durange so they're going to try him for this they've got a willing witness to willing to get on the stand and testify that ted attempted to abduct her, did abduct her, but she was able to get away. Her hair is found in, in his vehicle. It's a pretty slam dunk case. It is only going to be aggravated kidnapping as compared to murder, but at least that gets him in custody. It gets him potential of being put away in prison for a time period so they can continue to build these cases. But because he bailed out, he's not going to stay in custody until the trial, which is what investigators had hoped. So they, had, they kept him under close surveillance, but again, they didn't hide this from him, and this was likely an attempt to dissuade him from harming anyone else. Because if they're gonna do this surreptitious surveillance, hoping to quote unquote catch him in the act, that can backfire on a police department if he's able to somehow slip out of the surveillance, abduct and kill somebody while he's under quote unquote police surveillance. Not only, unfortunately, do you have another victim, you also have a huge black eye to the police department, and then you have a potential defense when it comes to trial of saying, couldn't have been me, I was under police surveillance when that person went missing. So they're not going to really do any of that sur surreptitious stuff, they're just going to follow him in plain sight. And I think Elizabeth would later say, when Ted came back during this time he's in waiting for his trial he comes back to live with her and she said basically anytime they left their her apartment she said it would sound like the Indy 500 with car undercover cars starting up to follow them wherever they went so again they weren't they weren't hiding it they were making sure he knew that he couldn't get away with anything uh, leading up to his trial 
And so while this was going on, while he was back in Seattle and they were surveilling him, investigators from three states, which Washington, Utah, and Colorado, met with 30 other detectives and prosecutors in what was dubbed the Aspen Summit. And this was to share information and evidence while formulating a plan to prosecute Ted for as many of the murders as they could. While they all agreed Ted was the one and only suspect for these crimes, no one had enough evidence yet to try him for a murder. So they were going to rely on him staying in custody on the kidnapping charge as they continued to gather evidence and build a stronger case. Ted's trial for kidnapping Carol took place in February of 1976. The public was well aware at this point that Ted was not only a suspect in this case, but many homicides. So Ted's attorney felt that no jury would give him a fair trial, so they requested a bench trial before the judge. So again, we've talked about these a few times before, bench trials, there's no jury, it's the judge weighs the prosecution's evidence against the defense's evidence, and the judge decides on merits of legality whether or not the person is guilty. Most bench trials are going to be going in favor of the prosecution because prosecutors don't bring cases to trial that aren't extremely strong, but if you're going up against either a potential to find a, a legal loophole or hoping to convince a jury that thinks he's guilty of two dozen murders, uh, I think you do what this defense attorney does and say, roll, your, roll the dice with a, with a bench trial. This bench trial took only four days after which Ted was found guilty and was sentenced to one to 15 years in prison. He arrived at a Utah State Prison in June of 1975 to start serving his time and in October, he was caught with an escape kit, complete with fake social security cards, airline schedules, and maps of the area. His punishment was several weeks in solitary confinement, and while serving his additional punishment, he was officially charged with Karen Campbell's murder, and eventually he was extradited to Aspen, Colorado to stand trial for the crime. So again, that was the crime they had the absolute most evidence for. That was the, they have her body, they have the pamphlet from his apartment with the check mark next to the hotel she was staying at when she disappeared. They have her hairs consistent or hairs consistent with her in his vehicle. And for a lot of these cases too, they were able to track down like gas station receipts or look at his bank statements and figure out that he was filling up with gas for some of these long drives. So they're putting together pretty decent cases and, and this is going to be for sure their strongest case. And six months after he arrived in Colorado, Ted was transported to the Pitkin County Courthouse for a hearing regarding his upcoming murder trial. He had elected to represent himself for the proceedings and as a result he was afforded the freedom of being removed from his handcuffs and leg shackles. So because there's going to be times that he needs to approach the, the judge's stand, he's acting as his own attorney, they loosen up some of the restrictions. Normally, if he didn't have any reason to leave where he was sitting in the chair, they would they leave some of these, especially a murder suspect, in their leg shackles and handcuffs, but he's he knows that he's going to be, these items are going to be removed. And during the hearing, the judge ordered a recess, and Ted asked if he could go to the courthouse's law library to research for his defense. The request was granted, and while he maneuvered to a spot in the library that was blocked from the guard's view, he leapt from an open second-floor window to the ground below, injuring his ankle. 
He was able to evade capture as he had worn some non-prison attire under his prison jumpsuit, and he made his way to the outskirts of Aspen and into the wilderness. He located a deserted cabin and broke in, stealing additional clothing, a rifle, and some food. After walking back into the wilderness, he became so disoriented that he spent two days wandering the dense forest and narrowly missed two of the main trails. He located a camping trailer and broke in, stealing more food, but his progress leaving the area was hindered by his ankle injury and his lack of knowledge of the mountain. After three more days, Ted decided to walk back down to Aspen and stole a car from a golf course. His now five-day escape had sapped him of energy and he hadn't slept much. Once he started driving, he began dozing off behind the wheel, and two officers on routine patrol noticed the car driven by Ted was having difficulty maintaining its lane and stopped the vehicle. After being taken back into custody, officers located maps of the area Ted had taken from the courthouse that were part of his right to discovery as his own defense lawyer. His escape had been planned meticulously, but thankfully his ankle injury hindered the success of his operation. Despite starting with a case that was believed to be enough for conviction, several pretrial motions were granted in favor of Ted's defense. Legal experts believe to this day that if Ted had gone to trial, he may have actually been able to gain an acquittal for the murder of Karen Campbell, and as that was the strongest case they had, other prosecutors would have been less willing to try him for their murders if he defeated the best case against him. But Ted wasn't taking any chances and started to plan yet another escape. This time, he focused on a plan to escape from the jail itself, and with the help of other inmates and outside sources, including Carol Boone, he obtained tools and cash to aid his escape. In something only seen in movies, Ted sawed through some steel bars that allowed him access to a crawl space that led to the jailer's apartment. On the evening of December 30th, while the jailer was enjoying a night out with his wife, Ted snuck into the apartment, stole clothing and other items, and walked out the front door of the jail. There was minimal staff working due to the impending holiday, so Ted's escape wasn't noticed until the following day at noon. By then, Ted was a thousand miles away as he had hitchhiked to Vail, boarded a bus to Denver, and hopped on a flight to Chicago, and landed by the time his escape was discovered. Ted continued to put distance between himself and the authorities west of the Rocky Mountains. From Chicago, he took a train to Ann Arbor, Michigan, where he stole a car and drove to Atlanta. He then bought a bus ticket to Tallahassee, Florida, and arrived there on the morning of January 8, 1977. After one night in a hotel, he found a room for rent near the Florida State University campus. While his original plans included getting secure employment and laying low for a while, Ted lacked any documentation that allowed him to get a job. So he used what cash he had been given by Carol Boone and then shoplifted and stole whatever else he needed to get by. Despite his desire to lay low, Ted could not resist returning to his life of inflicting pain and misery on others. On January 15th, around 2.45 a.m., he broke into a sorority house on the FSU campus and attacked four members of the sorority as they slept. He struck 21-year-old Margaret Bowman with a heavy piece of wood and then strangled her with a nylon stocking. His next victim was 20-year-old Lisa Levy, who he also bludgeoned and then sexually assaulted and strangled. 21-year-old Kathy Kleiner was in an adjacent bedroom and he struck her, breaking her jaw, and also attacked her roommate, 21-year-old Karen Chandler, also breaking her jaw and knocking her teeth loose while giving her a concussion and a broken finger. A pair of automobile headlights illuminated the room as someone had pulled into the driveway and Ted fled, 
the lights had saved the lives of Kathy and Karen. The lights had come from a car driven by sorority sister Nita Neary, who observed Ted fleeing the home via the back door as she walked up to the house. Ted, despite his close call, wasn't finished yet, and five blocks away he entered the basement apartment of 21-year-old Cheryl Thomas, where he struck her on the head while she slept. The attack fractured her skull and broke her jaw, but neighbors in the apartment above heard the attack and called police who arrived shortly after Ted left. Cheryl survived but suffered permanent damage. Technicians located a semen stain on her bed and two hairs that would be later consistent to hairs collected from Ted Bundy. After these attacks, Ted stole a Florida State University van and drove east 150 miles to Jacksonville, where he attempted to abduct a 14-year-old girl. Her older brother happened to see the interaction between Ted and his sister, and he intervened and scared Ted off. Undeterred, Ted drove 60 miles west and parked outside a middle school where he stalked and abducted 12-year-old Kimberly Diane Leach. Her body was found seven weeks later, 35 miles away in a, in a state park. Ted returned to Tallahassee but didn't have enough cash to pay rent for another month, and on February 12th he stole a car, another Volkswagen Beetle, and drove across the Florida Panhandle. On February 15th he was stopped by Pensacola police officer David Lee just before the Alabama border. The officer had run a check on the VW's license plates and found it was reported stolen on February 12th. After approaching the vehicle and telling Ted he was under arrest, Ted attacked the officer, sweeping his feet out from underneath him and shoving him to the ground. Ted took off on foot, trying to evade the officer, but Officer Lee gave chase, fired two warning shots, and tackled Ted, taking him into custody. So there's a lot to cover in this episode to include his trials and appeals and all that kind of stuff, so I'm trying not to, to step away too often from the story and, and analyze, but... Again, we've talked about this before. These warning shots are only something you're going to see from older cases and a lot of times departments in the South. These are not something that you'll hear about in modern times. Officers are not trained to fire warning shots. You're trained to only fire your service weapon if you ha are facing a deadly threat situation and just chasing after somebody is not a deadly threat situation. And, and we're going to find out Officer Lee doesn't even know who this person is. Now, there is a fleeing felon rule where officers can shoot someone who is running away if they believe that that person poses a significant danger to others, if not immediately apprehended. So if he was able to later say, I knew this was Ted Bundy, I knew he was responsible for two dozen murders at this point, he could be justified in not firing warning shots, but in actually firing real shots that would have struck and or killed Ted Bundy at that point, if he knew who it was. But we're going to find out he doesn't even know who he arrested. Um, and I just want to take a second to talk about the warning shots there. A search of the stolen Volkswagen found three IDs belonging to female Florida State University students, 21 stolen credit cards, which I also found strange because this is 1970s and credit cards are, I think, pretty rare. So the fact he found 21 stolen credit cards to me is pretty shocking. And then they also found a stolen TV, which is something we haven't talked about. But Elizabeth, when she talked to authorities, she also said 
Ted would always have new TVs, new speakers, new stuff in his house, even when he wasn't working jobs where he could afford that stuff. She always assumed that he stole it or shoplifted it, but it would be later confirmed Ted would confess that pretty much anything that in his life that was valuable or was expensive was something that he stole. Officer Lee also located clothing matching the description of the person who attempted to abduct the 14-year-old girl in Jacksonville. And Officer Lee, unaware that he had arrested Ted Bundy, one of the FBI's top 10 most wanted, overheard Ted say, I wish you had killed me as he drove Ted to the local jail. Florida officials wanted to prosecute Ted for the FSU murders and the murder of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach. He was held without bail until his June 1979 trial, which became the first nationally televised trial, and this included 250 reporters from five different continents which made me think I didn't follow the link to figure out these five continents, but obviously Antarctica is out, or at least I assume Antarctica is not covering this trial. So it made me think what's the one continent that didn't send a reporter. And the only thing I could think of was Australia, but being that most of my international listeners, this are Australia and they seem to have a fascination with true crime and, and a lot of Australia news outlets do a really good job of covering world news. I'm going to assume that Australia did send somebody to Ted Bundy's trial. So it'd be interesting to find the one continent that didn't send a reporter uh, to, to this trial. And Ted was facing the death penalty, so he was awarded five public defenders, but they would later say that Ted refused to listen to them and he wanted to make all of the decisions. A plea deal was worked out in which Ted would avoid the death penalty if he pled guilty and he would receive a 75-year prison sentence. At the last minute, Ted backed out of the deal as many believe he couldn't admit to what he had done. This has actually become a big theme for Ted is he will never take responsibility. He will brag to a certain degree about what he did, but it's not bragging about it is not the same as taking responsibility. He, at the same time that he's bragging about committing murders, he will blame just about everybody else for the murder to include his grandfather, his mother, his stepfather, other people. He'll even blame the victim saying that they were too vulnerable or too gullible so it was their own fault that they died so this to me is is something where he literally cannot stand before somebody and take ownership of what he did and he's required to do that as part of this plea deal so he backs out of it is willing to face the death penalty in order to not have to admit to what he did and the evidence against him at trial was overwhelming Two eyewitnesses put Ted with the murder weapon at the FSU sorority house and bite wounds he inflicted on one of the victims were matched by forensic odontologists to castings of his bite impressions. It took the jury less than seven hours to find Ted guilty of the murders of Lisa Levy and Margaret Bowman and on the aggravated assaults on the other sorority members and the other college student. Without hesitation, the judge sentenced Ted to die for his crimes. A second trial for the abduction and murder of 12-year-old Kimberly Leach was held six months later in Orlando. Eyewitnesses had come forward to claim to have seen Ted walking with Kimberly the day she went missing. Fiber evidence and other trace evidence that linked Ted to the crime was presented, and a jury took eight hours to find him guilty of the crimes. To make this case even stranger, Ted utilized an old Florida law that allowed a convicted person to declare a legal marriage during the penalty phase of their trial. 
Carol Boone was called by Ted to be a character witness during his sentencing phase, and while she was on the stand and he was acting as his own attorney, he proposed to her, and when she accepted, he used the law to declare their marriage legal. Again, this is a completely sad and tragic crime spree, but there's just parts of this entire story that you just can't wrap your head around. And that, this one, I don't, I'm sure there was something back in, I don't know, maybe the 1800s where for whatever reason, property rights, something or another, if you're facing death, you can declare a legal marriage so that you have a next of kin or something like that after or during your sentencing phase. And he found this obscure law and decided to make use of it by proposing to Carol, who we're going to find out later, she believed he was innocent. So she was a witness for the defense for both of his trials and then as a character witness uh, during this because... Remember, she she had a daughter, I want to say, just like Elizabeth, Carol had a daughter, and so Ted had been somewhat of a father figure to her daughter. Uh, Carol had been divorced twice, and she believed Ted was treating her well because she didn't know about Elizabeth, so Carol was blinded by what we're going to call it, love, attraction, whatever it might be, thinking that Ted was being a treated as a scapegoat that he couldn't have really done all these crimes that's why she gave him cash when he was in prison and and different things so she accepts his marriage proposal and basically they are legally declared married during the sentencing portion of his trial for killing and sexually assaulting a 12 year old girl the judge sentenced Ted to die via electric chair for his crimes against Kimberly Leach on February 10th, 1980. He was already facing two death sentences from his FSU trial, but this third death sentence from a completely separate trial ensured if there was a successful appeal in the first trial, there was still a chance this death sentence held up. So because he was tried for both the murders and all the aggravated assaults on Florida State University campus in that one trial, his two death sentences from there are the result of one trial. So if any part of that trial under appeal is found to have a mistrial or the conviction can get overturned or whatever it might be, there's no recourse. The prosecutors either have to retry it, they have to go through this whole process again. And that's with either of the murder charges. If they find one issue with the entire trial, both of those death penalty convictions could be taken away. Because this was a completely different trial in front of a completely different jury, it was a kind of a backup plan. Even though he was facing two death penalty convictions for that one trial, another death penalty conviction here means that there's less likelihood he's going to be able to, to beat all of those death penalty convictions. And while he waited the appeal process for his death penalty convictions, Ted started to open up to several people granting them interviews and explaining why he had turned to a life of crime. While he would admit to all of his crimes, all the way from theft to murder, he would say they were about possession and that he was obsessed with possessing what he wanted. Often that meant a new TV or speakers, but this included women. He would abduct, sexually assault, and murder women because that way he could possess these women completely. Every part of the act, from the abduction all the way to revisiting corpses, was about him taking full possession of their life and even possessing them after their death. It satiated his twisted desire for having anything that he wanted and maintaining sole ownership of it. He 
admitted to a profile with the FBI Behavioral Analysis Unit that by 1974 he had perfected the art of possessing someone through the abduction, sexual assault, murder, and desecration of their corpse. This implied that he had honed these skills via prior crimes that he refused to admit to. It's likely those crimes are filled with mistakes and blunders that Ted was afraid to admit to and would only confess to his quote-unquote perfect crimes. Ted continued to try to escape from prison, and in 1984 he was found with two hacksaw blades in his cell, and the bars of his windows had been cut and placed back in place with makeshift adhesive using prison soap as a base. From then on, he was constantly moved from cell to cell to make his escape attempts more difficult. While his appeals were being reviewed, an execution date for the FSU murders was set for March 4th of 1986. This was later pushed back to July 2nd, and 15 hours before he was set to be executed, the Supreme Court issued a permanent stay of execution due to what they saw as technical errors during his FSU capital murder trial. In response, the Florida Correctional System issued an execution date of November 18, 1946 for his death sentence for Kimberly Leach's murder. This was stayed again on November 17th for further appeal of review, but when those appeals were upheld, a firm execution date of January 24th, 1989 was established. The public, especially in Florida, was incensed at the delays in the execution, and that sentiment was echoed nationwide by death penalty supporters. But the government later stated these delays were part of the process, and the system moved as fast as they could to execute Ted Bundy. And we've seen this with the death penalty cases, Yes, they often take years, if not decades. And it was said that in this case, this was as fast as the case could move under the normal appeal process, that Bundy and his lawyers did not outwardly attempt to delay the execution. They didn't throw out a whole bunch of frivolous appeals or anything along those lines that often result in those decades-long delays for the execution. But short of the cases we've talked about where somebody has literally said, I'm giving up all my appeals, I want to die ASAP, this is as fast as the automatic appeals process can move. So while people were upset and felt like these were unnecessary delays, the government would come out later and say, this literally was a fast execution under the American justice system. We went as quickly as we could. And as his execution date approached, Ted welcomed investigators and reporters to speak with him about his crimes. He spoke openly about the crimes themselves and the demented things he did with the corpses after he murdered the women. He admitted to several other murders during the years he claimed to be active, but he didn't know the identity of some of the women he abducted and killed. People who spoke with him later stated they got the feeling Ted cri Ted's crimes were his own personal trophy case in life. He remembered vivid details of the crimes and victims as if he had revisited them in his mind at regular intervals, maintaining that trophy case and expanding it over time. And this is truly what people believe that he did, and, and several serial killers do. This is why some of them keep souvenirs. This is why many of them go back to the, the sites of their crimes. Is it allows them to relive it, and it becomes a point where, just like some people do with the happy moments in their life, whether it's a birth of a child, their wedding, an amazing vacation, whatever it might be, those are the situations you can often take your mind back to and relive and enjoy those moments. He did that, but he did it with his abductions and his murders and, and 
and different things that he did, he, he kept those as the trophies in his mind and he would revisit them so often that when investigators and reporters would ask him specifics about crimes that had occurred eight, 10 plus years ago, he re could recall them as if they occurred just yesterday. And despite his willingness to confess some crimes, Ted did not want to be executed. He pushed for clemency and developed a personal relationship with a female attorney who then used a deceitful tactic of writing to the surviving family members of Ted's crimes in Utah and Colorado and asked them to write letters to the Florida governor requesting a stay of execution so that Ted had more time to help investigators locate their missing loved ones. So he develops this personal relationship with this female attorney who develops feelings for Ted. So she's willing to do just about anything for Ted to include sending letters to these families of these missing loved ones. Their bodies haven't been found. And so her tactic is, hey, if you write the Florida governor and tell him, please put a stay of execution for Ted's execution date, Ted will promise to work with investigators in Utah and Colorado and try to locate your deceased loved one's remains. These are people who have yet to be able to bury their, their daughters because Ted disposed of their bodies and either couldn't remember where they were or hadn't had enough time to really help investigators search for those bodies. And so they use this tactic. But this is going to fail because many of the family members would state that they knew their loved ones were gone and the monster responsible didn't deserve another minute of life on this earth. The governor of Florida saw through the immoral tactic and he actually stated publicly that he would not allow Ted Bundy to use the bodies of his victims as a negotiating tactic. Carol Boone, who had married Ted in court and believed in his innocence, changed her mind when he, when he started confessing to reporters and investigators leading up to his execution. So she, right up until he started to actually confess to reporters and investigators, she believed he was innocent of these crimes. I don't know how. I don't know how you could live with this person. And maybe it's just a self-defense mechanism that Carol came up with, that she literally couldn't see herself being involved with a man this vile, this evil. And it took until he finally flat out said, yes, I did these things before she went, oh my God, that's... I was with this guy and it didn't help obviously that he had developed this relationship with his female lawyers while she, while he's married to Carol so or Ted the well-known man of infidelity continues this even while he's in prison and eventually Carol realizes that Ted had betrayed her and Ted had basically used her for their entire relationship so she moves back to the Seattle area with her daughter and she refused to speak to Ted, and she even turned down a call from him on the morning of his execution. The switch was flipped, ending Ted Bundy's life and reign of terror at 7.16 a.m. on Tuesday, January 24, 1989. He was declared dead as people sang, danced, and set off fireworks outside the prison where he was executed. He was cremated and his ashes were spread at an undisclosed location in Washington State. In the 34 years since Ted's death, he has been one of the most studied and documented serial killers in American history. Legal experts state he was well-versed in criminal forensics and was so organized that he planned his killings not only in such a way that he left little evidence behind, but he selected different geographic areas to impede law enforcement's recognition of his crime pattern. Ted was a master manipulator and used minor adjustments to his appearance to hide in plain sight. 
He was able to approach multiple people in daylight and later commit crimes, but yet no one could affirmatively identify him until late in his murder spree. And I think, you know, people point to the struggles that people had back in Washington and, and Seattle identifying him. And I think if you realize at that point in his life, you know, he had a steady, well-paying government job. He was more apt to look a little different, I guess, if he, if he tried. And he also went through that massive weight loss. It's 15 pounds, but still, it's, it's, it's going to change some facial features on people, change potentially the cheek and jawline and that kind of stuff. And then you compare that to when he's down in, in Seattle and then, or sorry, when he's down in Utah and when he's down in Florida, maybe he just didn't have the time or the resources to change what he looked like. Maybe he just didn't care. He just got lazy and, and didn't, again, didn't try as hard to, to hide different features of his face, didn't change haircuts as recently, just little different things that maybe things that he did early on he stopped doing and made it so that he was more easy to identify and prior to his execution ted went through several psychological examinations almost all of the psychologists arrived at the conclusion that ted suffered from antisocial personality disorder this mental condition prevents people from forming emotional attachments to most people and can result in poor impulse control violent tendencies and complete lack of remorse and just like with anything else just because somebody is diagnosed with some type of a mental illness does not mean they're going to become a serial killer does not mean everybody that's diagnosed with antisocial personality disorder is going to become a ted bundy and that's because the even psychologists opinions differ on the causation of the disorder but most are going to agree that it's a combination of both genetic and environmental influences so while ted's father is unknown it's likely that his father suffered from something very similar and this would have contributed to his ease of abandonment of his child because if you're a guy that is in a relationship with a woman and then she gets pregnant there's certain guys out there that will stay with that woman will become a father to that child even if there's not a romantic relationship he'll still be a decent co-parent to that child and be involved in that that child's life and then you have the people that are the men that just, as soon as they find out they're potentially going to be fathers, they just disappear. It, it takes a certain type of person to know that you fathered a child somewhere in this world that you're never going to meet, that you're never going to know anything about. I'm not that type of person. I'm not the type of person that would be able to know, hey, there's a child out there somewhere that I don't know about, but I'm okay with that. It just that would bother me for the rest of my life that this child doesn't know who their father is that there's a boy or girl out there somewhere that is looking for their father looking for me so i honestly think that his father probably had something like antisocial personality disorder to be able to just disappear and and never be a part of of his life and then we look at Ted's grandfather, who we mentioned in part one, and he was said to be an abusive drunk by many people, and if this is true, Ted would have witnessed some traumatic domestic violence towards women and violence towards animals from the only person he ever really considered a father figure. And this occurred at a very young age and likely contributed his propensity for violence towards others as a child and into adulthood. And we go back to his grandfather 
kept pornography around that he found as a very young child and it was said some of this was violent pornography so we're, we're putting images into a very young child's head of violent sex of violence against women violence against animals so if this is all true some point to it not being true and saying ted bundy just made this all up so that he could blame somebody else for his problems but there's a lot of people that believe this did happen or at least to some degree it happened and the combination of that genetic and environmental factors is what contributed to his propensity for violence as a child and into adulthood and this combined with limited impulse control and a strong desire to possess items starting with an imaginary father led ted to a world where he took what he wanted and without normal emotional and moral guidelines this include committing acts of horrible violence against others in total, Ted Bundy confirmed with investigators that he killed 30 women between 1974 and 1978, but he made several comments about the number being much higher. He has claimed to have killed anywhere between twice that number to around 130 people. Despite some people believing he started at age 8 with 8-year-old Ann Burr, he did once confess to killing an unnamed boy as his first murder when he was around 12 years old. There are an additional 18 named murders that are linked to Ted, making his likely victim count at least 48, but most experts agree an accurate number is somewhere around 75. While his total number of victims is open for debate, the fact that he was a sociopathic, inhuman monster is widely accepted. The world is a much better place without Ted Bundy alive, and hopefully there will never be a killer like him again. But that was the story of Ted Bundy. Thank you guys for listening. Remember, stay tuned for those future episodes, which are going to include episodes of True Blue Crime Investigates. You can find that through the website and on all the major streaming platforms. And eventually, if you do join through the support via Patreon, you're going to have access to those True Blue Crime weekly premium episodes as well. And for more information on that, you can either write me at truebluecrimeproductions at gmail.com, and you can also find me at truebluecrimeproductions on Facebook. So thank you guys for listening. Again, I'm off to CrimeCon in a few days here. Been a great three and a half months uh, recording episodes for you guys, and I look forward to the future of uh, True Blue Crime Productions. So thanks a lot, guys, and we'll talk to you after CrimeCon. Later.